The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Most of us probably just received a stimulus check from the government. And it seems there's a pretty good chance we'll be receiving another one here shortly. Free money. Or maybe we should say unexpected money. I'm not sure it's exactly free. Which for some people has been extremely helpful. Timely, given present financial difficulties. And I'm not trying to enter into the politics of all this. I'm just saying that's a reality. For some people it has been extremely helpful. It's been a lifeline for them. At the same time, other people, others among us, we have not lost our jobs, aren't worried about the rent, aren't facing food shortage like so many in Utah even are, but we still got a check. So, free money. Unexpected windfall. What should you do with it? Well, the government economists want us to spend it to stimulate the economy. That's point of the word. And maybe a financial advisor might tell you to save it or use it to eliminate debt. And God in the Bible says to do what? What does God in the Bible tell you to do with that stimulus check, with, with that free money, or with any of the rest of your money for that matter? What does it say? It's an important question because Money is so important and so constant in life, right? We, we make, and anybody makes, numerous financial transactions of some sort or another every day. It's all around us. It's a constant. And so it would be very helpful to have some ready-to-hand guidance on finances, the sort that we find in the Bible from God, spoken to us it, at the level of principle, not in details, which is really helpful because it means it can apply to all kinds of situations like ours on any given day or in any given year. That's the subject that's in front of us this morning in, in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians in a context that's not like ours, one that we don't share, but because it lives at the level of principle can help us. can help us understand what to do with the money that we have. What God lays out here are, are some principles that will be helpful. We started this section last week kind of as a two-chapter section, chapters 8 and 9. Paul, we saw, brought up with the Corinthian churches a forgotten project. He hadn't forgotten about it, but they had. He is engaged with raising money from the Gentile churches of Turkey and Greece, modern Turkey and Greece, to give help to Christians in the area of Jerusalem. They were facing numerous difficulties, famine, persecution, and He'd mentioned this to them. We can actually read about this in, in 1 Corinthians. He brought this up and he talked about giving money and they had initially started with that, but for some reason or another, perhaps because of the distance that had developed between them and Paul, maybe the false teachers who had arrived in town had kind of like driven this schism and they'd kind of siphoned off some of the money. For one reason or other, they'd, they'd stopped this project and kind of forgotten about it. And he wanted to, to restart that. We brought this up last week. But we noted 
giving starts with receiving. Because as Paul brought up this issue with them again and brought up the example of the Macedonians who had given to it, he wanted to first point out something we always must first point out for ourselves. That what happened was a gracious move of God in his people. Grace from God came to them first. Grace that drew them back to the Lord and kind of drew them back and kind of cinched them up closer with God. It's the thing that exists between seeing some sort of a requirement and actually doing it. In the middle, grace from God that draws us to God. We saw that first last week. We have to remember that first every week as we talk about these chapters. So it kind of needs to sit in the the back of our mind. The first thing that happened is the grace of God moved, drew them to him, deepened relationship. That was first. But then we do still need some instruction, some guidance on giving. And that's what we're going to find in our passage today. So I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And begin reading in verse 8 down through verse 15. And do that and then draw out two observations. Verse 8. I say this, Paul says, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, And whoever gathered little had no lack. We'll stop for today. So two observations from this passage here. Here's the first. Christ-like giving sacrifices from self to enrich others. Christ-like giving sacrifices, sacrifices from self to enrich others. Verse 8 Paul writes, I say this not as a command. And then in verse 10, he he picks up again with, with the same thought. In this matter, I give my judgment, my opinion, my my perspective on this. And given that he's an apostle, he's probably good advice. But the point is that he's not telling them something that's authoritative or mandatory. There's no command here. When he said at the end of verse 7, see to it that you excel also in this grace. What he's saying is, I told you that, but I didn't mean to tell you like this. Like down at you from a position of authority. If you think that I'm I'm commanding you, I'm not. I'm really more trying to exhort you. I'm trying to like point you in a direction that you should go and encourage you to walk that way. It's an exhortation, verse 8, that would prove 
by the earnestness of others, if you were to walk this path, it would show that your love is genuine. The Macedonians, the example that he brought up earlier, they were very earnest in their begging. Remember we saw this? They, they begged Paul for the favor of giving their money, taking part in this. And, he, and what he's saying is, that's what love looks like. Brothers and sisters in need, I hear about it, I see it, eager to help. That's how they acted, that's what love looks like, and so we'll, we'll be able to kind of compare the two and we'll see the genuineness of your love if that's how you respond too. Giving so as to help. It will show the genuineness of your love. And so, skipping verse 9 for a moment, verse 10. So this is my advice. This would benefit you. It would be good for you. Last year you started to do this. Finish it. They, they, they know about this. I already sketched it out. They, they know he brought this up before. They, they now recall this. They remember. They started it, but it, it kind of had waned. It drifted off. Well, your readiness was good, but it needs to be matched by the completing of it. Good intentions aren't going to help anybody. It is very easy to talk and not do. So love actually sees a need and doesn't just feel for it isn't just like moved by it, but actually is moved to action. It makes a plan and then sees things through because love is focused on the beloved and love wants to meet the need of the other even if it involves sacrifice. And what does he hold up as exhibit A? Not the Macedonians, in fact. He holds up Verse 9, Exhibit A, which is always Exhibit A. It, it, you know, the Sunday school joke is whatever the question is, the answer is Jesus. That's because that's true. Oftentimes that's true. Whatever, whatever the, the thing that needs to be illustrated is, Jesus is the illustration of it. Whatever the question is, he's the answer. Whatever, whatever needs to be modeled, he does it for us. So Paul holds up, verse 9, he interrupts himself, in fact, with the, this, this tale of, you recall, don't you, the supreme lover, the supreme giver, who consciously focused himself and acted himself to sacrifice himself for the beloved ones that he was looking at and thinking of. There, there wasn't just a, like a plan in heaven about a marvelously spectacular, really cool way to save people that they, they then thought of and then ruminated on and smiled at and then thought about more and ruminated on and smiled at. He got executed. And that's how we know his love was genuine for us. He laid down his life for sheep. Genuine love looks like Jesus. The infinitely rich one, which does not mean financially rich, of course. Yes, he owns everything, but it's not talking about cash. He means Jesus, who was rich in the most important way. He enjoyed the fullness of glory. 
He dwelt in eternity past in the presence of God the Father and God the Spirit in, in the community of the one triune God and enjoyed that communion perfectly, eternally. Partaking of beauty in every conceivable way, knowing only good and having as much of it as anyone could imagine. Unhindered, he was rich. Rich in fellowship, rich in delight, and being rich for our sake became poor. He stepped out of that abundant, beautiful existence and into the fallen world of ugly loss and shortage. He took on a body which for us is common, but for him was bizarrely limiting and frustrating. He became personally acquainted with fatigue and hunger, pain. And he became a servant, subject to his creatures. He had people tell him what to do and expect him to do it. And then people who would, obviously, as he grew, take him in hand and force him into paths that no one would want to walk, humiliating him, hating him, ostracism and criticism and violence and injustice and beating and execution. He's rich and became that poor. Not because it was easy, and not because he had no other choice, but ironically because he faced an easy choice. Understand, he didn't do that because it was easy for him. It was very hard. And he didn't do that because, well, I guess A leads to B and I can't do anything else. Well, he, could have, he could have stepped out of that any moment he wanted to, but he faced an easy choice. He's the God of all grace, full of earnest real, genuine love for you. And because he is the God of all grace and because he is full of such genuine love, then it was impossible for him to consider abandoning you. He couldn't do it. You, the rich one, you can step back into that realm of wealth and enjoy all the abundance. You'll leave them behind. Well, then no. No. Not at all, not, not for a second do I consider that. That's an easy choice. I love them, I want them, I'm after them. For our sake, he became poor, willingly embraced that, took it on, so that we, his beloved sheep, who were enslaved in our poverty, which of course is not something financial, that we had no access to and lacked completely all the riches he had, and that bondage that he stepped into, that was our reality. He became poor so that we who were enslaved in poverty could become rich. Could step into and now in part taste and forever have access to all the wealth of the riches of the bounty of God. That's love. He didn't just conceive of that and want to do it. He actually did it. 
He sacrificed from himself. He sacrificed himself that we who were poor would become rich. That is deep, wide, vast, sincere love poured out on us by God the Son, the God of all grace. He atoned for us in self-sacrificing love. And Paul interrupts himself because he can't not. Here's exhibit A. This is our model. This is who we are to be like. This is who we are being made to be like. To see the sheep, we are one of them, but, but to kind of stand with him and see the sheep and, and see in their need, see, see the poverty that they are stuck in and have some desire within us to, from our abundance, whatever it is that we have, to step into it and not actually just to think about it, but to do it, to step into it, to, to alleviate if we can, how we can, for whom we can, but to, to be drawn to that, to love the brethren like he does, would be to walk along the same path that he did and is still walking. And that's a good company for the journey of life, to walk the, the path that Jesus is still walking, to feel what Jesus feels, to want what Jesus wants, and to act like Jesus acts. It's good company. Exhibit A, there's our model. That's what love looks like. To give like Christ would be to give yourself to meet the needs of the people. It's a model for us. But there's more. Verse 9 is not only a backwards-looking model. It's, it's a forward-looking promise. We look back at the model and we see, like, there, there's what we are to be like. And there's a, exhibit A... Like this, okay? But the forward-looking piece of that is that we might become rich. That's not like experience riches for once in a moment. That's that we might become heirs of heaven. We are rich. We became filthy, stinking rich. We became owners of everything. That's Paul's phrase, chapter 6. If by some chance you could, and this is pretty close to literal truth for Paul, end up where you have nothing. Give away all your money, all your clothing, have no home. Paul said we might actually become like Paul, having nothing. Paul's assessment of his life was, comma, but actually I possess everything. I have nothing, but I possess everything. Well, that's you. There's not just then, we see, not just a model seeing, like, we, we step back here and we see that's how I'm supposed to walk forward with Jesus, like, like Jesus. Okay, but looking then ahead, you realize I can't ever become poor again. You can't ever become poor again. You might get rid of everything that you have, but you will still possess everything. 
And that's a foundation upon which you can stand with Christ. And that, that then gives you a, a freedom to, to make even crazy generous, sacrificial, joyful financial decisions like the Macedonians, perhaps. I can't outgive God. You've heard that before. He already gave. We sometimes think of it as, I'm going to give away $100 and he'll give me $100 back somehow. He already dump truck deposited the wealth of heaven in your account. You can't outgive that. You're rich. You can afford to sacrifice. You can afford to give yourself. And that's what Christ-like giving looks like. It is genuine love that acts, that actually acts in sacrifice perhaps, giving to meet the needs of the brothers and sisters around me, the people that I see. That's the first point. Kind of an attitudinal set. But we still would be helped with some, some maybe a little more specific guidance. And that gets us to the second observation. Christ-like giving, first point is that it's sacrificing of self to bless others, to help others. Well, Christ-like giving, second point, matches one's means and aims at Christian equity, or Christian equality, Christian fairness depending which word your translation uses. Christian giving, Christ-like giving, matches one's means and aims at Christian equality, Christian fairness. Verse 12, Paul picks up with this idea that's, that's of course, been all through the passage, the idea of what's, what's in the heart. If you're talking about words like earnestness or what's genuine love in verse 8 or desire in verse 10 or, or, or willingness or eagerness, verses 11 and 12, you're, you're in the, the realm there of what's inside here, what's in the heart. And Paul then makes the point, this is at the end of verse 11 and then also in verse 12, if the heart is willing acceptability in the sight of God comes according to what a person has, not according to what you don't have or what your neighbor has. So the offering is acceptable to God. The gift, the giving is acceptable to God when it is according to, when it accords with, when it matches one's own means. Or we could look at 1 Corinthians 16 where Paul also talks about this and say, he says there, as you've prospered. So when it accords with how you've prospered, it accords with what you have. God provides and give in a way that matches that. That's the teaching that's here. And something else is not the teaching that's here which it's helpful that we kind of pause on and understand this. 
This is the perfect passage. And verse 12 is the perfect verse for Paul to say, if it's willing, giving is acceptable according to a tithe of what you have. God accepts it if it's willing and if it is one-tenth, that's a tithe, one-tenth of what you have. It would fit right there. It would fit in other places in these two chapters too, but that's the perfect spot for it to be, right there. But it's not there. And there is no way that Rabbi Paul forgot about it. Paul's trained as a rabbi. He knows knows the Old Testament inside and out. And there's no way that he overlooked the requirement from the law of God that 10% of resources be given to support the temple complex and the priests and the needs of others. It was everywhere, so very common. There's no way he forgot it. Yet in these two chapters, never mind the entire rest of the New Testament, it's not here. But what is here is an explicit statement about what is acceptable to God. Is your heart willing? Does it match what you have? Period. No mention of the tithe. Why is that? Because the tithe is not our governing standard in the new covenant. It's that simple. I'm going to say a little more about it, but it is, at the end, that simple. We are not obligated by the law of tithing. What is acceptable? Willing heart is a match what you've been given. That's it. The verse does not say if it's 10% of your income. So we should set aside the idea. We really should set aside the idea of tithing. Now, sometimes we use the word tithing, the word is kind of a shorthand for giving of money in the church to kind of differentiate from giving of other resources somewhere else. Tithing is kind of like church money giving. And I not want to nitpick the word. If we want to use the word for that, that's okay. But the idea, we need to be sure that we set aside the idea. I'm not required by God to tithe. We should get that. And when we get that, it makes things much more free and much more complicated. Both. Which we should kind of expect because that's how God works with us in all of the Christian life now here in the New Covenant, is it not? He sets us free and sets us to thinking with the mind of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, indwelling us in front of the promise of the gospel about our security in Christ and all the blessings and all the wealth that we have in the future. That's that's how all life works. We should expect that kind of with, with money too. It's the same way. We've been set free. Christian, you are set free in the sense that you have no specific law that you have to do to be pleasing to God. You are pleasing to God. And you can't become more pleasing to him. So we're not under the law in that sense. We've been liberated from it. There should be a lightning in our heart. We're going to see something about cheerful giving in coming weeks. But we've already seen cheerful, joyful Macedonians and Christ himself with a, with a gracious, loving, giving heart. 
We've seen some of that already. And this should put us right in the same place with no sense of, of an exacting God who is over us, kind of pencil and paper in hand. And then we before him with kind of like this servile, grudging, have to. There's none of that. There's no math. There's, there's no discussion of, is that a tenth of gross income or net income? Is it a, is it a tenth of, of salary? Or what if I get some extra money like an inheritance or a stimulus check? Should I tithe off of that too? Should I tithe? Strike those words. That's great relief. There's no sense of a tax being levied here. There's no law to kind of like parse out like that. So you can put away any sense of obligation and you can put away your calculator. But then you got to put on your thinking cap. Because what, what exactly is the definition of according to or matches what I have? That just got really confusing. The willingness is in my heart. I, have, I heard the first point. I, I see Christ. I want to walk like that with him. I, I mean, I'm, I'm there, and I just got an $1,800 stimulus check, which I wasn't counting on getting any of. So should I give all of that away, or $1,000, or $800, or $500, or $100, or... It would be a whole lot easier if I just knew that it was just, you know, times point one, 180 bucks, done. No need to think about it anymore. That would be a ton easier. And that's not the way it works. But this is a place where the tithe can then be kind of helpful. And this is how we should interact with the tithe now. In implementing the tithe long ago, God was in effect saying to his people, I've given you enough that you can make it on 90%. You have an extra 10 in your pocket. Give that away first and trust me with the 90. That's a rule of thumb. There were exceptions, of course. Poverty changes things. No income changes things. But generally, that's a starting place and that's helpful. I probably have 10% extra, or I'm going to have 10% extra. So I'm going to start there as as a rule of thumb. And then I'm going to keep in mind that there were also offerings on top of that because I might have been prospered far more than that. I may have more than 10% extra in my pocket. So what matches the way God has prospered you? Maybe it's 20% or 40%. There isn't a number. Not a percentage, not a flat number. That's where, for me, at least, this, I think for others too, that the tithe is is helpful in this sense. It gives gives me a starting place and reminds me to start my spending with my giving. It's helpful there, but, but even with that, I'm still going to end up, we're still going to end up, just like with the whole rest of the Christian life, with God, having to walk with him, think, and trust him for today and tomorrow's daily bread. That's the Christian life. 
We're going to have to think and pray and lean into trusting God and realize that if, if I lean into it with a heart that's right, maybe I could have given more, maybe I didn't need to give that much. I lean into it with the heart that's right. God does not actually need my money. The kingdom is not built on my money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he gave me everything that I have. He's got it. He's really after my heart. If the heart's willing, give in a way that matches and aims at Christian equality. Verse 13, Paul says, I'm not talking about you giving away more than you have and sending you into shortage. That's not the teaching. And maybe he has to say this because the two examples he just used, the Macedonians gave from their great poverty, and Jesus, he says, made himself poor. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you have to make yourself materially poor. I'm not trying to just move around poverty. The point is equality or fairness. That's the goal. And that's sort of a buzzword in our culture, equality, so you kind of need to be careful with that. Whatever anybody else may mean by that word, Christian fairness or Christian equality in this context does not mean something like identical or exactly equal. We think of it sometimes, if you've ever seen kids, like dividing something up fairly like a can of Coke pour it in two glasses and wait for the fizz to settle so you can see exactly where the level is and you top this one off so that it's fair. That's not what he means. You look at the end of verse 13 and then the beginning of verse 14, a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need and then vice versa, their abundance, your need. Fair, then, is using abundance to make sure needs are met. Not the splitting up of all the abundance 50-50. That's not the goal. Fair is looking around at the body of Christ and making sure all the needs are met. And I say body of Christ limiting it in that way because that is the context here. It's the body of Christ. Now, talking about this passage, I do need to kind of like step aside for a second and say, there's another context in which we can think about giving. Paul in Galatians will say, do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. And so, the body of Christ especially, but everyone And very often, God may put extra into our pockets so that we may use it as a testimony in in his name to bless others. And particularly now, as we look around, there is a a significant amount of need in the world, in the nation, in our own state, and in our own communities. I mean, I look down the street in in my community, and it looks, you know, okay, kind of like it always has. But... My wife earlier this week was talking about how she heard the, 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 the grade school in our neighborhood, the grade school just opened up a food pantry. Grade schools draw kids from your own neighborhood, right down the street from us, and they can't keep the thing full. 
There are food pantries in the schools and increasingly so in the schools now because people need the food in Utah on the East Bench. So we should, we should be thinking about what kind of testimony can I, can I offer? How can I use maybe some of the abundance that God has given me to make Jesus well-known and, and to show his concern for people? How can I be like Jesus who walked around and indiscriminately dealt with and healed people who were hurting in a variety of ways? That, that's, that's part of the scope that we should be thinking about. But the passage here does give us a more narrow scope, talking about especially the household of faith, which can be complicated itself because we live in an age where you can know what's going on in the middle of any continent, anywhere on the globe. You can get an email, a pop-up ad, some sort of a solicitation about everything, and is it all for you? No. In our context, again, Paul had reason. It's another discussion as to why. Paul had reason to raise money from the Gentile churches for the Jewish church and to bring it back to Jerusalem. There was reason for that, to gather in the wealth of the nations. Reason that did not lead him to raise money for the Macedonian church that was just as poor. He had reason that drew him one way and not another. And God will work that way in all of us. Reason that will draw us one way and not the other within the body of Christ. But be sure that it draws you somewhere. In some way looking around to say, what, what is fair? What is equality? Well, using the abundance that I have to actually give it and meet the needs. And in the future, vice versa, they may give back. God shows that he is his goal in using that word, and then he shows that it is goal, his goal in using the verse 15 illustration. If there ever was an example of God fairly meeting all the needs, it's the manna in the wilderness. God sent manna for 40 years, and some, some gathered a lot. Skilled, eager, young, strong, gathered a lot. Some would have gathered little because they're sick, injured, old, infirm, way young, otherwise occupied, busy. But however it was, some gathered more, some gathered less, and everybody had their needs met. And then every night God said, and I wiped the slates clean and started over again tomorrow to teach you to trust me for your daily bread. You can't game the system. If you try to keep back, I'll wipe it away. He wanted them, like he wants us, to give according to what we have. If, if we've gathered much to give it, We've gathered little to receive it, but he gathers us all together as a people and says, I'm going to deposit amongst the people enough. He's smart enough and powerful enough to give directly to every person exactly what it is they need, but he doesn't do that. 
If we each need one portion, he gives one nothing and gives the other two. Why? To cause us to give like Christ and to receive like the church. To build us together as a body that makes us actually genuinely love one another and depend on one another that makes both of us to trust him for our daily bread. I give away one. I could keep this back and take care of my tomorrow. Nope, give it away. I'll take care of your tomorrow. And in so doing, he makes us a people that are united and are like him and are attentive to one another, caring for one another's needs, equitably so. Generous and gracious and full of love like Christ who gave himself for us. Exhibit A, the one that we want to walk with, the one who has secured our future and given us a place to stand in which we can sacrificially give in love as a grace joyfully to meet the needs of the body in particular. That's what he set us to. That's what he's given us the spirit for. Let me pray towards that end now. Let's pray. Father, would you build us up as a people who are generous like you and who are wise and dependent don't think independently, who don't think selfishly, but who are dependent and are wise about the opportunities you've laid in front of us. It's a complex world that we live in. Will you give us, please, your spirit and give us a sense of rest in you? Thank you for giving us Christ and in him making us rich. Grow us up in our giving, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.